Hey, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. And over the last few weeks, we've actually been in a sermon series on the book of James. And the book of James was written uh, by James, who's the brother of Jesus. So he's someone that, I mean, if you could imagine, he's a brother. So he grew up with Jesus. So he's seen Jesus uh, into maybe his teenage years and into adulthood. And what's so stunning about this letter, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is that James introduces himself and he says, a servant of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he sees his own brother and he calls him Lord. And uh, he says he's his servant, which is so stunning that his own brother is willing to follow Jesus. And here's what we know about the history of the early church is that Jesus' family actually does also claim for him to be Lord, witness the resurrection, and they also follow him. So whenever we uh, kind of, as we reflect over the next few weeks on anything that James writes about, You've got to understand, uh, like read it through the filter of James's writing as if Jesus um, is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's writing as, as if to say like, hey, listen, this is what I've witnessed of my brother who I call Lord. So um, as we reflect then on what James is going to talk about, whether it's morality, truth, uh, integrity, any of these topics, he's doing so with the backdrop of James being the brother of Jesus. Now, here's the thing about Jesus, and as we were to reflect, a couple of years ago, my wife, she had a surgery, um, a laparoscopic surgery to remove her gallbladder. Now, she was having this surgery, and I was stunned because this was the first time that uh, I had heard about a laparoscopic surgery. Um, and those of you who are in the medical profession, many kudos to you. As I was hearing about this, the technology and the advancement to do these incisions through this technique called a laparoscopic surgery and the instruments and the advancement needed to do this kind of uh, non-invasive kind of surgery was really stunning to me. Now, I remember just kind of reflecting on that. And uh, today, some of you doctors and you who work in the medical profession, or for others, perhaps you work in other professions, you know there have been so many advancements when it comes to medicine, technology, and all that we're capable, the human ingenuity that exists is absolutely stunning. And yet, here's the thing. We have these ancient teachings of, from people like James, uh, teaching in reflection of who Jesus is, and the moral teachings of Jesus are absolutely stunning. They are just as relevant for today as they were uh, centuries ago when they were first taught. Now, how many people would say that in today's world, we have advanced not only technologically and medically, but we've advanced so much as human societies. We are much kinder to people. We're way more loving. There's no more war or bloodshed. I mean, most of us would scoff at that and be like, if anything, we are more polarized now than we've ever been. There is more war and division that exists. And by the way, have you heard there's an election this year? Anyone heard about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, how stunning is it, the divided world that we live in? And here's what's so amazing, is that James, you're going to hear some of the teachings, the moral teachings that James teaches in light of the fact that he follows Jesus. And see, whether you're a Christian here or not, see how applicable and how stunning and how insightful these moral teachings might be. So for instance, here's how James starts in the passage that we just looked at. Look at what it says. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now notice he doesn't say, do not get angry. It's not like anger is a sin. He just says, be slow to anger. Because human anger that is not kind of uh, kept by something deeper ends up leading to all sorts of issues and problems. But it's really these three things. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger 
that James is now encouraging people who follow Jesus. This is what I call you to be in your relationships with one another. I remember talking to someone who wasn't a Christian and we were talking about relationships, and I said, you know what, I think you might want to try, and the person asked me for my advice, and I said, what I think you might want to try is be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And they're writing this down, they're like, where did you get that? <laughs> like, from the Bible. <laughs> it's from James. Uh, see, you don't even have to be a Christian to know that there's something deeply wise about this manner of relating to another person. Uh, in other words, it's this posture then that's able to take the posture of not being judgmental and harsh, what most Christians might be known for today, but actually taking this posture of being a presence that's so present with people that the posture is one that's quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, Edwin Friedman, uh, who's one of the pioneers of what's called family systems theory, uh, before he died, he was finishing writing this book that became published many years later. And it's this book called Failure of Nerve. And notice, it's a book about leadership. Leadership in the age of the quick fix. And one of the things that he noticed, especially about the world that we live in, is that leadership is such a buzzword, especially in the States, that is so business-driven, so much about advancement, and, uh, you know, your return on investment and the making, maximizing your buck. And one of the things that he reflects on is as he talks about leadership. And he was a rabbi of a religious community. And in his book, Failure of Nerve, he actually introduces different phrases when it comes to this idea of this buzzword called leadership. Because so much about leadership is about data and performance. And he actually contends that leadership... Uh, what should be added to the lexicon is this, this of leadership is this idea that we should be a people when it, it's not about data and metrics, it's actually about maturity and character. And one of the things that he observes in Failure of Nerve is he introduces this phrase that really changes the texture of the way that people lead. It's not about performance, it's about being what he calls a non-anxious presence. Uh, someone who, when the whims of the market or when the whims of communities, the ups and downs of an organization come, what does it look like for us that the manner of leadership that we're looking for in today's day and age that goes beyond quick fixes is basically a leadership in which I can be a non-anxious presence. He introduces this word called differentiation, that we differentiate. We're able to be uh, a people who are deeply rooted and mature so that we don't go flying off the handle. We're not up and down based on the market, but instead there's a, a certain kind of uh, a serenity about us. Now, when it comes to this idea of non-anxious presence, I was thinking this is what this is, right? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. You know, this idea of anxiety within a system, uh, I was just thinking about at home. Like late at night sometimes, uh, I... I I'm someone who I don't like a lot of clutter around. And so sometimes when I'm at home and it's getting late, I'll just look and I'll be like, ah, oh, like, and I'll just ask my children. I'll be like, hey, why, why are these dishes here? And my son, whose radar is like exceptional, and he's sitting right here. Uh, my son will be like, uh-oh, Appa's about to get upset about something. I'm like, I'm like, I'm not upset in fact, you asking me that is getting me upset right now, you know, <laughs> like there's a part of me. But he knows, right, because he knows that the anxiety within a system, that my own anxiety, just by that question, he knows that something has risen within me, that it's probably too late at night, I probably need to go to sleep or whatever else. And he's just like, he's just giving a warning sign to his little sister. 
like, hey, Appa, something's going on right now. Just want to put out the yellow light right now. Why? Because the anxiety within a system rises, and he knows that when I get into an anxious posture, that's when the worst parts of me are going to come out. That's when I might be really short with my temper, with my impatience, or whatever else it might be. And, and here's what, here's what uh, Friedman is arguing. He's saying that what we can do, what leadership looks like, is, is any system that we inhabit, whether it's in your workplace or your family, wherever it is, what would it look like for maturity look like each of us being a non-anxious presence? Uh, the same is true for me. And, and really this idea when James is talking, he's talking about being a non-anxious presence who's quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, isn't it true that if one were to actually embody this, could you imagine if those of you who are married here or in a relationship with someone, a uh, significant other, how this would change the texture of your relationship? If each one of you was quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Or as a parent, or as a child with parents, what would it look like for us? What if your boss was quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger? What if the employee that worked under you, that was a direct report to you, was quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger? Do you see how this wisdom principle actually changes the texture of all of our relationships. And here James is basically saying, he's introducing us to this new manner of living that when it comes to Jesus, this is what he had witnessed of Jesus, that Jesus was such a non-anxious presence. Someone who was quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. David Augsburger, who's a therapist, look at what he writes about the power of listening. He says, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. When someone listens to you or to me, when you take the posture of listening to someone, of making sure they're understood, how it changes the fabric of a relationship. Now, here's the thing, and I've shared this before. When I was in seminary studying to be a pastor, I took two courses for a whole year on preaching, on basically learning how to talk, learning how to say things. And I took nothing on listening. Isn't that stunning? No wonder Protestant Christians are so known to be judgmental. We're so quick to speak, quick to be angry, and it goes against the posture of what James is talking about. See, really what James is introducing to us is this posture of listening, this posture of being slow to speak, slow to anger, is a posture of essentially just becoming a loving person. We are called to be a loving presence to others. And this requires us then to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. The, the reality is that when I get anxious, when I get off kilter, when I get dysregulated emotionally, that's the last thing that I do. So much so that my son's like, uh-oh, here comes Appa right now. Now, here's the thing. What would it look like for the invitation for us? If you were to even just take a, an inventory of your own life, uh, not your spouse's life. I know some of us are tempted right now. Some of us are like, hey, listen to this. This is real wisdom stuff here. But of your own life. What if each of us were to take inventory and say like, is this what I embody? And James is saying, this is what Jesus embodies and this is what we're called to. But notice this isn't just where James 
stops. Look at what he says. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, some of you are like, whoa, righteousness. Sounds like such a religious word. But notice the language that James is about to use. He says, therefore, if being a loving presence is what you're called to do, therefore, Look at what he says. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Now, some of us might be a little bit jarred by this because he's so strong in his language. He uses words like righteousness. There's a right way of doing things. And he uses words like get rid of all moral filth and evil. I mean, in this stunning way, what he's basically saying is that morality matters. He's using words like righteousness, getting rid of evil. And the two are actually tied together, being a loving presence, but it's tied together with also being a holy presence, being someone when it comes to morality, the way that I live my life, that really matters too. Now, I realize some of us, we might get offended by this. I can't believe this. I know you're going to be talking about doing the right thing and all this. Yeah, and this is what Christians believe. We believe that we should hopefully be the most loving presence with people. No matter who they are, we are the most listening, slow to speak, slow to anger kind of people. But in addition to that, we should also be a people that when it comes to evil, when it comes to moral filth, when it comes to money, sex, and power, when it comes to these things that hopefully that we are people that live with a rightness to it, that when it comes to money, that we're, we're doing so not out of greed and selfish ambition, but out of generosity and wisdom, that when it comes to sex, that we are people who honor God with our bodies and honor other people with our bodies, when it comes to power, that we leverage any power that we have for the good and for the sake of others, not just looking for our own self-advancement, Now, do you see, uh, here I made some claims. I made some claims on what I believe a virtuous way of life is. And here's the thing. Here's what Christians do. We believe that it's not just a free-for-all, but yeah, that we do believe in a righteousness. And what James is basically saying is, like, we need to get rid of any kind of moral filth and evil. Whatever's been kind of causing us, whether it's the lust of the eyes or the pride of life or the lust of the flesh, these are words that are used throughout the scriptures that Paul talks about. These are ways in which our lives get misaligned with what God wants. Now, again, I realize some of you, maybe you're not a Christian here today and you're just like, I find that so offensive. Well, here's what I would contend. I would contend that even if you're not a Christian, you have some sort of standard of what rightness looks like, of what is true and what is not true. And here's what Christians believe. We believe that there is that too. And now here's the thing about Christianity, right? Is Christians believe then, and here's what James is saying, that it's not only about being loving. We are called to be loving, but we're also called to be holy. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times we might bifurcate the two and actually put them at odds against one another. There's a group that when it comes to being loving, it's like, no, just be tolerant and loving and compassionate. And this is what we are. People put uh, some on this spectrum. And then meanwhile, there's another spectrum. And that spectrum is, oh, those are the holy people. They do everything right. They say everything right. They know everything. And they're judgmental towards everyone else. I mean, most people say, oh, this is where the Christians are. But they're so hypocritical. But do you see what's so extraordinary about what James is saying? He's saying the task is to be 
both holy and loving. Now, Jesus embodied this. He was known as friend of sinners. Just think about this. The people that the world labeled sinners and outcasts, they were the people who were most drawn to Jesus. And yet here's what we also know, that Jesus was also sinless, walked with integrity. He somehow was able to hold together both. And what James is doing is he's imploring us to be a people who can hold on to both. And if we were to take inventory of our lives right now, whether it comes to being a loving presence, how many of us were not quick to listen? We are quick to speak, quick to judge, whatever it might be. And James is saying, no, 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 that is not the way of Jesus. Or some of us, the ways that we go about in our lives, when it comes to money, sex, and power, when it comes to our private lives, what we fill with our minds and our attention is really not of God, but is evil and full of moral filth. And what James is saying, both of these ways, we come to God and we basically are to come and say, God, I, I need you. What, what, what the task of, it, of following Jesus requires is, is pursuing both. Now, look at what James does, though. He, he actually continues, and this will be a theme that we find throughout the letter that James writes. He writes, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Look at what he says. Do what it says. High five your neighbor. Say, do what it says. High five your other neighbor and say, do what it says. <laughs> High five the person in front. No, I'm just kidding. All right, all right, stop. Let's stop, okay? Do what it says. Like, listen, we, we can talk all day till we're blue in the face about this. But will we be a people that does what it says? Try to live with a loving presence and try to live with a holy presence. What does it look like for us to do what it says? He says, anyone who listens to the word does not do what it says. Like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at his face goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. See, integrity matters. And this will be a theme that comes throughout the, the book of James. It matters that we might talk about being a loving presence and we talk about holiness, but that we're a people who actually earnestly pursue these things. Uh, in a few weeks, we're starting a course called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. It's a course on basically how to listen, how to speak with love, how some of us have been shaped about all sorts of violent ways of communicating with one another, of expressing our anger, uh, all sorts of ways in which we have been formed, not by God in the ways that we are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, but we've been formed by all sorts of factors. Now, it's a course, it's a sacrifice to take the course. It takes time. It's eight weeks long. We ask you to read and do practice and homework. Now, here's the invitation is that we are now, we're reformatting, we're being discipleship to Jesus. Following Jesus means we're, we're trying to change all those patterns of ways that we've been used to functioning in the ways that we speak, in the ways that we speak ill of people, in the ways that we contribute to unhealthy cultures by the ways that our criticizing kind of attitudes get the best of us. What does it look like for us to say, Jesus, I want to follow you to become a more loving, honest presence? 
in all the ways of, of, you know, coming to church on Sundays, but also getting involved in groups and serving. These are all ways in which we're saying, we're saying hopefully. Now, I recognize that there's people all along the gamut when it comes to our spiritual journeys, but what does it look like for the invitation for all of us to be leaning into holiness, being shaped by values that are so different than the ways of New York City, which is so much about me, myself, and I. What would it look like for us to be a people who thought differently? And here James is saying, do what it says. Now, look at how James continues. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a light rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. We're gonna get into some of this about your speaking and what comes out of your tongue in a couple of weeks. But notice how it takes this other churn. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There it is, loving and holy. But notice this idea of loving, he actually takes it to another level. See, because it's not only, hey, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Be a loving presence with other people. Uh, I mean, most of us were like, yes, that is such wisdom. I'm gonna practice that at home with my spouse or with my children or with my friends. That's who I wanna practice that with. But notice, like, James takes it to another level. He's saying, this is what religion looks like. It's not only being loving to the people that you like (laughs) or that you're related to, or that carry the same political affiliation as you, it's, I want you to start caring for people when it might be of no benefit to yourself. Care for the orphans and the widows. That's what true religion is. It's a call to actually go beyond yourself and your family and your neighbor. It's actually a call that's extraordinary. Now, this is crazy talk here because in a city like New York, come on, like how, much of, how many of us have time for this? Like it's hard enough trying to love my spouse, trying to love my children. And yet this is so extra. I mean, here James is, and James is basically like, oh my goodness. No, no, this is what religion looks like. It's a call to actually serve the orphans and the widows. People who are so different than you, where honestly, you probably, in your right mind and the way that you live your life, most of us, we're just like, no way am I even thinking about caring for other people in addition to this. And yet this is the call that James is calling us to, to not only care about yourself, not only care about your family, but to care about the least of these. Now, where does that ethic come from? And here's the thing, throughout the Christian movement, I realize there's so many faults within the Christian movement. There's so much hypocrisy. There's so much pain. There's so many leadership sins. And yet, another legacy of the Christian faith is this call to sacrificially be generous to others, the orphan and the widow. Uh, Nicholas Kristof, who used to write regularly for the New York Times, uh, he would He's not a Christian, but he would visit uh, all around the world and share stories about what's happening around the world. And uh, this was uh, an article that was written in 2011. 
And it was during a very contentious time in the world, and especially where there was a lot of criticism towards evangelicals for the hypocrisy, for the power-hungry nature of Christians and the church, especially in the United States. Now, some of you are like, what has changed since then? I know, not much. But here it is, 2011, he writes this article, and the article is called Evangelicals Without Blowhards. And look at what he writes in his own observation of evangelicals, writing as someone who's not a Christian. He says, self-appointed evangelical leaders come across as hypocrites, monetizing Jesus rather than emulating him. Those are the preachers who won headlines and disdain. Forgive us, Lord, for that. But in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many others. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their income to charities, mostly church-related. More important, go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles across the world against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians for, or conservative Catholics, similar in many ways, who truly live their faith. I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. He's just saying, yes, there's all sorts of faults to evangelical Christians, but somehow these people, something has come over them where they are unusually generous and willing to help the least of these. And the question for me and for you is, where does this come from? Why would anyone want to live this way? Why? Look at what Jesus would write, or say, rather, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Look at what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and your spouse and your children and the people who have similar interests as you. And hate your enemy. But I tell you this. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now this is stunning. It was stunning when Jesus first said it. But it's stunning for each one of us today. Again, this idea of being so extra. Here's Jesus is, and he's like, no, no, no. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. I tell you, love your enemies. The orphans, the widows, the people that you hate, the people that you despise, people from Boston. I'm just kidding. Uh, just love, love them too. Why? Isn't, isn't capitalism about like just kind of like looking out for myself and only the strongest survive? Like why? Isn't the American dream that somehow I create a better future for my family, my children, and my children's children, and their children's children, and then 
we can just live wealthier lives. Like, isn't, isn't, isn't that the American dream? And here Jesus comes in the scene and he's just messing things up. He's like, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Remember I told you how James, here he is, James is like, hey, don't let it only be about what you say. He says, do something. And here's the extraordinary thing about the Christian faith. Jesus would say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then Jesus himself would die on a cross and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus would do something about it. He would die on a cross even for people who might count themselves as enemies of God. And yet Jesus would love them anyway. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes when he reflects on Jesus. Look what he says. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? See, how would anyone have the resolve and the inner fortitude to start not only being holy and loving, but loving in a manner that would be extraordinarily, sacrificially loving and generous to the people that even we're called to hate. How? It's only when each one of us begin to, to see ourselves as we were once enemies of God. And yet, Jesus has loved us and sent his son. Jesus has come to die for us and reconcile us to God. I mean, this is extraordinary. And this is the good news. I was at a pastor's gathering earlier this week, and uh, they were honoring uh, a pastor from Queens named Roderick Caesar, who's been in ministry for many years. He's 72 years old. And they invited him up to honor him to just a legacy of ministry. And Roderick Senior, Ju- Caesar Jr., he came up, and he was kind of shaking, and he, who's this man? And... I was sitting in the crowd, and as he accepts this Lifetime Achievement Award, he basically just, he starts tearing up, and he's like, I am just a sinner, saved by the grace of God, if not for the grace of God. And all of us were just like, oh. Like we're just, I mean, we're just, we've kind of lost it. Like here he is and his, his life message is basically like, I, I was just once an enemy of God. But because of God's love, he loved me enough to welcome me into this family. You know, how many of us, perhaps one of the reasons why pursuit of holiness and pursuit of a loving presence, maybe what's been elusive in that is that we've never first experienced that the wonder of a love of God that would die for you. See, it only comes from this posture where we ourselves realize I am nothing but a sinner before God who somehow loved me enough that he'd give me a brand new start. 